0: Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary.
1: Welcome to the Arts Week Dinner. What a deal. Um, It's my pleasure, you all know who I am, uh, to be here representing the Hendricks Center Center. Uh, and uh, to interview our distinguished panel. Reg and I go way back. That's right, I knew Reg.
2: When I had hair.
1: <laughs> well, I was gonna say. I, <laughs> I mean, take your pick, right? <laughs> I was gonna say, I knew Reg when his hair was dark. Okay, <laughs> so, so anyway. Um, so, uh, so it's a real pleasure to do this, to talk a little bit about arts and theology. And so I I think the way I want to begin is to ask Reg um, to tell a little bit about where in the world did an arts and media department come from? Because a lot of seminaries don't have that. I mean, they might have a music thing or something like that. But arts and media? Yeah.
2: Um, I was a part of the pastoral ministries department for over 30 years. The uh, beginning in 19... uh, 94-ish, uh, the number of artists in the pastoral ministry department started growing, and so the, the, the seminary asked me to design a program that would accommodate those students in the THM. So we came up with, in those days, we called it an emphasis. We did an emphasis in 1994, I think it was, and then uh, that grew, and they asked. They asked me to design a um, an actual degree program, and that's where the MAMW came from, the Master of Arts in Media and Worship, came out of that, and that was in 2005. We had some students who grandfathered it in uh, so that we uh, uh, we started graduating students, actually the first year, Naima Lett, mm-hmm. uh, out in California now was uh, our first graduate in the new Master of Arts in Media, and in those days, it was Master of Arts in Media and Communication degree program turned to Master of Arts in Media, Arts, and Worship. Uh, So then, and then it has grown from there. That's how it came about. So the department goes back to what year? The department goes back to 05. 05, okay. No, I'm sorry, the the, (laughs) the degree program goes back to 05. The department goes back to 13. Okay, there's help coming
1: from the floor. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: keep
1: me on track. Okay. okay, so what what led from the movement from the program to the department? I don't want to take too much time on this, but this is fascinating.
2: From the program to the department. Well, we we had enough people in the program, and it was we were really. Uh, PM has birthed, PM is Pastoral Ministries, and PM birthed the um, counseling department. Uh, it um, us. Uh, it the media arts people. So there were just basically too many people under the umbrella of PM oh, with a specializations. It's yeah, kind of. <laughs> uh, it had it had with a specialization in the arts. Uh-huh. So they they said, go ahead and and. Uh, Um, try your own department. Okay so so basically
1: the department grew organically from within the activity of the school in many ways fair enough?
2: Yes and I think the administration uh, thankfully was very supportive and has been continues to be very supportive of the arts here at DTS and wanted to encourage those students who were seeking careers either in the local church as media directors, for example, or entrepreneurial line of uh, student who wanted to go out like Naima did mm-hmm. and become actors or technicians uh, on the West Coast or in New York or in Nashville.
1: Okay, this is good. This is a good transition to the next question, which is, because I think some people look at, at media arts in the campus and they go, uh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess, kind of like an orphan, you know. Uh, it, it, it's associated with what's going on. So I'd like each of you to address this question. And that is, um, uh, art is actually a pretty fundamental theological category of things. And what you represent is actually more central than some people might think. So that's like an opportunity to
2: say, "Tell us how central you think this is." I'll real short, <laughs> if you were here this morning, you heard uh, John Dyer talk about how the the first person who's filled by God's Spirit in the Old Testament was an artist, it was Bezalel, who received the commission to construct the tabernacle with all of its beauty and functionality at the same time. Uh, it it is it is a it is not. from God's perspective it is uh, art is not ornamental only it is beautiful but to say that it's beautiful doesn't mean doesn't equate with its being ornamental it is foundational it is substantive theologically and it is in a place of influence in our world that gives voice to our message
3: it's important to consider too that art, in many ways, in its relationship to theology, is very much like work and theology. We've tended to think there's secular work, and then there's you know godly work, and there's there's art, and then there's being a pastor. And um, both of those things are really uh, in the last, thankfully in the last 10 years or so, a lot more theological reflection being done on wh- how did that happen, that, that needs to not happen. So we are not just a department that is people who are um, working artists, like I'm a writer, I'm a working artist, but we're also filled with people who are studying theology, who recognize their education is truncated and they need some of the arts. And they may not be able to write or draw or do music or whatever, but they wanna think about how do I um, cultivate culture? How do I, my kids are watching videos all the time. How do I use what's all the way around me to communicate?
4: Uh, art. Art deals with the fullness of what it means to be human more so than <clears throat> lots of our educational models that are primarily reason-based. Um, so bringing the emotions, bringing more of what it means to be human, the, our physicality, and a lot more of who we are to the table in doing the theology. And that, that's part of how we should do theology. Theology isn't simply a rational understanding of the world.
1: Can I put two ideas together and let you comment on them? Because I think that they're, and we're thinking about how the arts are foundational, or how the issue of design is foundational, how creativity is foundational to theology, and I, and I think of this in two ways. I think that oftentimes we think about God as creator, but we don't think about God as designer. Um, so there's that, and then you look at the image of God, and one of the which is a reflection of that God who is creator slash designer, and you look at that in, that picture and you go, what is it that makes um, people unique. You know, it's their ability to reflect. It's their ability to to image to image God. Okay, they're made in the image of God, but they're imaging God. They're representing what He can be like. Um, they are creative in in the way they go about uh, their life. And then there's the assignment that God gives people at the very beginning in Genesis one: speak as to how this opening chapter of the Bible, this opening act, if you will, of the biblical story helps us to connect the arts with theology.
3: We often think of God as speaking ex nihilo, and the world comes into being, and then we're like good deists, we just, we just sort of left, and, and we are, um, our theology says that God is the sustainer, right? In him, uh, in Christ, all things hold together, So he, and tilling the garden is part of the process, it's ongoing creation, and God is very interested in his ongoing creation.
4: Tim, go ahead. Along those same lines, in Him we live and move and have our being. It's it's this ongoing process, and us being in the image of God is and It's not just uh, what we were born with. It's something that we practice. It's something that we do in the world, and we cultivate and create and <laughs> and change the world accordingly to being made in the image of God. And that's part of uh, God's ongoing creation. Uh, um, my, my mentor, Rob Johnston, wrote a book on general revelation and he distinguishes general revelation from the ways we usually think about natural theology which uh, Dr. Glenn was hinting at, mentioning um, the deist sort of perspective that God created and it's done. And we often think about art as a reflection of what God has already done in the past as opposed to an understanding of God as creator that is continuously sustaining and creating and doing and active in the world, not just passively done something in the past that we're looking back at. Um, And so we join in that, we create, we participate and do things
2: as well. Yeah, I think that we, we create, that's true, of course not in the same sense that God creates, no, no human being creates ex nihilo. Human beings create ex creatio, which is using existing materials that God provides for us uh, in, a, in an effort to represent him, glorify him, honor the name of Christ in, in what, we, uh, what we put out there. Uh, C.S. Lewis said that none of us makes in the sense that God makes God is the ultimate maker. We build. Uh, we take existing materials and we build stuff. We make things in an ongoing effort to to accurately, clearly, interestingly, relevantly reflect God to the world.
1: And, the, and of course, the, <clears throat> the creation mandate in Genesis emphasizes the idea that we're supposed to rule, subdue the earth. We're managing it. We are creatively... Um, forming the way in which people live. We steward the creation in many ways. And this isn't just a mechanical process of checking boxes and making sure people from go A to B, but it actually, part of that sustenance is the way in which we we nurture one another, we uh, encourage one another. And, and art is a beautiful way of doing this. I'm, I'm transitioning to this kind of a question. We tend to think of art we tend to think of art kind of like we have a love hate relationship with arts kind of like we might have with cre- with the culture uh, and and what I mean by that is is that sometimes when you think of the arts and particularly if you move into media and those kinds of things, you think about uh, look at all the damaging stuff that's going on out there, etc but I, I think sometimes um, Christians need to do a better job of seeing where the potential is in the creation and in the arts for actually having fruitful discussions about where people are in life. Because I actually think art is oftentimes a lens into into getting us to think about reality in ways we might not otherwise think about it. Mm -hmm. And when we do that, we really have an opportunity, it seems to me, to appreciate um, some things that otherwise we might be slow to grasp. Help us with that, with that tension. The and, and I want you to emphasize the good side of what the arts and culture can do for us, not because we're so used to the negative side.
2: Yeah, we're not. We're not about uh, putting up. We're not about pulling the drawbridge up and going inside the castle keep and and just us and we create our little our our little world. Yeah it's we let the drawbridge down this is this was one of the key aspects of the reformation when luther uh, switched from his previous position of draw the, draw pull the drawbridge up to let the drawbridge down after his after his trip to rome 1511 he switched and that was part of this great transition into go into the world and make a difference in the world through conversation and dialogue with the world now there are some things that we would do that the early Lutherans wouldn't I think I know Uh, we would uh, we find many points with artists who are not believers artists who are in the world and who have come upon who have come upon truth and goodness, and beauty, and we can can use those connecting points as bridges to our culture to celebrate the good that they have found, the truth that they have found. They just don't know where it comes from, and we get to be the signposts, to use another Lewis analogy, to point them to the source of all truth, goodness, and beauty in the person of Jesus Christ. That's a great place to be
4: so paul doesn't show up at the areopagus and just say this is bad this is terrible condemn this this is but he he sees what is good and points it out and names it as good and says you don't really know what you're doing here but look at this that's god that's true that is very true he quotes from their own poets about other gods and he claims it as good and 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 we need to be able to do that we need to be trained to do that um, to recognize good around us. If we are gonna take it seriously that God is active in the world, that the Holy Spirit is active, drawing all people unto Christ. And if we're gonna take, also take seriously that we are fallen, we can't assume that we have all the right answers and the right theology perfectly, and that we can't learn anything from anybody else. And that there's only this one directional, like we have the truth and we're gonna take it there. Well, yeah, that's partially true. But also, if people are really made in the image of God, and if the Holy Spirit's really at work in the world, there's truth there, and there's sometimes that we need be, to be critiqued because our theology is not perfect. So we have to be able to listen.
3: One of the courses that we offer is a course in Italy on medieval art and spirituality, and we begin the course by saying we're going to approach this with a hermeneutic of charity. We're going into Italy, Roman Catholic roots, and we we know we, you have been learning to think critically, but what we don't want you to do is be a critic of everything. There's <laughs> a big difference. And so it's like take a Venn diagram, and, and there are plenty of other places where we'll assess the theology, but here what we want you to do is... Have that hermeneutic of charity. What I mean is, interpret it through a loving lens, a lens looking for the things that we have in common. That Venn diagram of seeing what overlaps, and it's really helpful for then looking at <clears throat> whether it's icons, whether it's paintings, uh, whether it's cathedrals, and learning how to read a cathedral to to recognize how what a rich history of art came before us. And I think, um, well, that's enough. I'll stop.
2: There's there. a there's a, a uh, just to follow up on this and, and what Dr. Baslam was saying, um, when we go into the world and we discover these points of connection, these connecting points between truth and goodness and beauty, what's left out of the equation and what we get to participate in is the thing that truth is based upon. And that's, a, that's an ontological category. Truth flows from being. Truth flows from being and is consistent with the being of God, the biblical God. And so we get to show them that the truth that you have accidentally discovered is rooted in God, and in particular in the person of Jesus Christ, and that truth will lead you to a morality, a goodness, consistent with his character, and out of that goodness will flow beauty. So it is It is it is not chronological, but it is ontologically sequential. That, and that's, that's where we get to participate in the conversation with the world, is pointing them to that source of being in the person of Jesus Christ that they just are unaware of.
3: But sometimes also even finding that source of being in their work, okay? Mm. Um, so I think one of the things that sometimes trips us up is we've been trained as we read the Bible and we interpret the Bible to consider authorial intent. What did the author mean? There's really one thing the author had in mind, right? But when you look at a painting, you don't do that. You do the opposite. Many times the artist doesn't care if you figure out what he or she was trying to do. They wanna know, what do you see? What is that bringing out in you? So it's a very different way of looking at something. And often we'll see something about Christ in something that was created for that very reason. They weren't creating it for Christ, but because we're Christians, we're, we're seeing it through that grid and we can appreciate what they have done because it can, it can enhance our own worship because our eyes are, are beginning to be training to see in that Venn diagram beauty in the unexpected places.
4: And sometimes our hermeneutic of finding the author's one meaning in the Bible is problematic. if you can abstract the meaning from a parable you don't need the parable much of the bible is stories about god Um, we have the stories for a reason you can't simply abstract the meaning in one way and have one definition of the meaning and then apply it to something today it's it's a valid way of looking at the text but I don't think it's the only way of looking at the text I think stories invite us to enter with our our understandings of who we are and what we've experienced in life they invite us to enter into the story and be changed by the story as opposed to looking at the story figuring out its meaning abstracting it and then applying it to what we're doing today but it's two different would, methods. We wouldn't say
2: that the axiom "beauty is in the eye of the beholder" really holds much water. Uh, part of that is true; it's partially true. But beauty, for it to 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 follow the canons of beauty, must correspond to the reality in which that beauty is based. That's the being. That's back at the very beginning. The be- the being that that. That out of which flows truth, out of which flows goodness, out of which flows beauty. So it's not a subjective, just a, just a, well, I think it's black and you think it's white, therefore it's both. That's not true. That's not good. That is a distortion. So what we want to do is we want to, and, and the, the idea that we can, the whole idea of intent is very murky. Uh, because how can we um, you can't get inside the head of somebody else how in the world are you going to know the only way to get to intent is through meaning there are there are different things the meaning is in the text the intent of the author is not unless he says I mean this I intend this so you have, to, you have to look at what we have in the text, and you may guess at intent, and it may be an informed guess, but that's all it'll ever be. What you have is meaning embedded in the text, and is that meaning consistent with the character of the one who created? Well,
1: that was a little discussion of hermeneutics. <laughs> <laughs> On um, which I don't have any opinion, so I won't express myself. <laughs> so, um, uh, so, so let me let me um, let me just point out: we've got mics on either end, as is often the case when we do interviews. So, those are for students who want to ask questions. I'm going to ask one more question, and hopefully, you'll come up to the mics. And I want you to each point out one class that you're involved in that might not be a normal class to think about taking at a seminary but that you think a seminarian should take. Okay, Is that, does that question make sense? Just one? You, you, <laughs> one each, one. one each, just one each. Okay, so you've got to weigh that in your mind, those 55 courses that you're now choosing between. All right, so do you have
2: one or? or, yeah, or? I got one. Okay. I've, I've got more than that, but I'll just do, just do, do one. Okay. Yeah, um, teaching it in the spring, it's called Dramatizing Scripture. Uh, it is taking the Word of God without a ser- without a traditional sermon approach. It's memorizing Scripture and performing it. I've taught this all over the world, and we have seen God God's Spirit do the most incredible things around the world with scripture that is memorized and performed according to the canons of, uh, of theater arts and how you, how you go about using the stage effectively, how you go about using your voice effectively, how you go about embodying the character so that when people leave your performance, what they don't say is, you know, I never heard it that way before. What they say is, I never saw it that way before because they participate vicariously in, the, in, in an event and they, uh, one guy said, they, they, they remember the tears of a forgotten sorrow. Uh, they, they actually participate in the event. So I, I, I and the, the principles in dramatizing immediately uh, are applicable to your preaching. Or your teaching. How are you going to use your voice most effectively in your teaching and your preaching? How are you going to use the stage most effectively so that you don't violate the natural law of theater and actually work against the kind of message that you're trying to create? There are psychological advantages to different parts of the stage. You're either going to use it accidentally well or you're going to use it like most people do, accidentally very poorly and actually contaminate your message through an inappropriate use of your body, your voice, and your place on the stage.
1: Tell us how you really
2: yeah.
3: feel. <laughs> uh, I'm going to, to pick a class where every other year there's a magnificent conference in the, um, the northeastern part of the US where we live in a house together for about five days and we attend the conferences for writers. Um, and those who love to read. And they bring in Pulitzer winners and National Book Award winners who have written winsomely on faith, not necessarily Christian faith. And it's our job as theologians to go together and figure out what is it that they're doing that's so winsome, that we can borrow, that we can use. Um, we can steal. So, exactly, okay, <laughs> we can steal. That we can appreciate, that we can grow from, that we love. Uh, And so it's just a wonderful time, and then we all read one book in common from one of the keynote speakers and have uh, one last night where we're sitting around the table with 12 people who've all read the the same book. And uh, it's every other April.
4: I teach a couple of classes that are uh, theology and contemporary literature and one theology at Sundance uh, Film Festival. So those classes are really about learning how to listen and how to listen well to culture. Um, And I think we could all use a little more of that. I think a lot of us don't know really well how to listen when we pray. And I think it's something we can habituate in our lives about how to really listen to other people, how to listen to art, how to listen to God a little bit more, so.
1: I think I heard you. So that means there's a question over here. So go ahead. Um,
3: So taking the image of... um, of sort of letting the drawbridge down and going out into the world to interact with the art that's there. Um, So for for those of us who haven't grown up, trained in our churches or our families to do that, um, so myself included, I immediately sort of have a reaction to to certain types of art. There's certain things that I think, well, I don't even know that I should see that, um, um, or participate in that. So what might be some some reasons for um, unwarranted fear, fear that maybe isn't in line with, a good theology of the Bible? That's fear that I'm creating, that God's like, why are you even letting that keep you from interacting with this art? Um, But on the other hand, what might be good cautions as you kind of make that journey?
4: That's a lot of questions. Unreasonable fears, I think we have poor theologies of our bodies. Uh, We have poor theologies. We we tend to have poor theologies of the created world. Um, We tend to move towards a Christian Platonism that uh, says that our faith, our spirituality, and sometimes our rationality are what are most important and have to be protected. Um, And we don't interact well with what it means to be in a world where we bleed and poop and uh, to, to think about uh, Jesus, our savior, going to the bathroom or, I mean, you, you, I mean th- that kind of, to say stuff like that makes us uncomfortable and kind of weirded out, right? That same sort of uncomfortability is often the kind of stuff that art is dealing with and trying to say, this is part of what it means to be human, face up to it. And we could do well to listen to some more of that. Um, I'll let y'all handle the caution ones.
3: (laughs) I think anything that objectifies um, other human beings and, um, but again, you know, that's some of that subjective. Um, It's it's sort of like the same question as, what can I watch on TV? Well, there's not one answer for everybody. some you know some of us it's real clear what we can watch and then it's a little fuzzier what we can't but I think often our f- our fear with art is just we don't know what to do with it we don't know how to think about it we don't know how to approach it we don't know what questions to ask and we're used to being in control um, so we want to control
2: it
1: Are you punning, Reg, or are you going to no go I'll, I'll okay. say just a brief thing about
2: okay. it. Um, i've had a number of students come across sit sit across from my desk people who are going to la or new york mainly and they're wondering where to draw the line in terms of parts that they will accept words that they will say uh scenes that they will play and like dr glahn said there's no one right answer for you, you can't create a rubric for the kind of scene, you know what? If you do that, you're not going to work in L.A. or New York. I'll tell you right now. For one thing, you're never given the whole script. You don't know what's in the rest of that movie. You don't know what, you, now, if you have a play, yeah, you can read the play ahead of time, but not, not with movies, and often not with television series. So you're going to have to make up your mind, know thyself. Know where your stumbling blocks are, and they're the same stumbling blocks as the guy sitting next to you, And don't open yourself up to, don't compromise yourself by putting yourself in a position where you would have to participate in a scene, or for me, it's saying words because I was burned as a kid badly with uh, a a lot of really uh, terrible things that were said. And so I avoid that. It means that you won't work a lot but you know what, I can get up in the morning and look at the guy in the mirror and I can live with that guy. What I couldn't live with is if I compromised my principles and placed myself in a position where I am tempted, tempted to to do things and say things that I would be uncomfortable with, and so I just say, no, I can't do that, but my brother, my, might feel comfortable doing those scenes and i'll support him a hundred percent and i'll be there for him you know to to help him so i it, it's it's a it's slip it's slickery uh and, and it's there's not an easy answer you have to answer it based on your knowledge of who you are and the line that you don't want to cross and i'd rather err on the side of conservative than i would take a chance and and compromise what i believe to be right
3: let me add one more thing that i think has been helpful to me um when we read about uh to think on what is true what is honorable what is right we sometimes think that that means we can only think on what's Mm g-rated and i think and i think this is where a lot of christians have made a mistake because i think what's essential in that is the point of view you couldn't read the bible If you were saying everything has to be G-rated, some of the things, some of the analogies God makes to Israel and their whoring is—it's pretty graphic, okay? And so you could say, well, that's just nasty. You know, I can't go there. And I think the point of view is—is, am I rooting for the bank robbers to kill people so they get away? Mm -hmm. That's not thinking what's good. But if—if I'm going to create something that, that at the end has victory. I would hope that I've made the darkness dark enough so that the victor is really victorious over something, right? So if you sort of sanitize evil and then have Jesus the victor over it, it's not at all the same as, as Jesus saving really, truly evil people. That doesn't mean you have to sort of wallow in the evil, but it, but it also, I think, um, is, is a help for me to look at, I can watch a G-rated show, but where I'm rooting for the bad guy. <laughs> Um, you know, the point of view of the show is you, you want them to get away with something. Um, I think is a lot more dangerous, maybe than than something else that that others might not consider good, but that you're actually rooting for good in the end.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm much more offended by most G-rated films than I am R-rated films, uh, because the, the the production values are so lousy. And. <laughs> Uh, Tell us what
1: you really think, Reg.
2: (laughs) I I have told my students for years, you know, if God were writing the Bible today, he couldn't get it published in the CBA. It's got too much sex and violence in it. Yeah. It'd be Genesis 1 and 2 and we'd be done. (laughs) There
3: there is a place for for G for children, but when you say, safe for the whole family, at some point the adults should be able to, you know, yeah. Somebody has to play Judas.
2: Exactly. And play him realistically, believably. Yeah, I mean, I, I, this
1: is an important point, you know, and I'm gonna bring up an example. Uh, very uh, popular movie among Christians was God is Not Dead. Um, and in the midst of, you didn't see it? Okay, okay, I can always count on Tim, okay? Tim, let's talk movies, all right? <laughs> And the thing that struck me about it was the portrayal of the non-Christian was so exaggerated and so out of whack that no one is rooting for this guy unless, you know, they're on the edge of depravity already. And I'm sitting here going, I've been on university campuses. I know the slot that guy is portraying. And that's not a reflection of the reality you see on those campuses. The person who plays that slot is so winsome and so, um, I'll use the word debonair or whatever, that you're attracted to them as a person and that's part of what makes what they say so effective. So that we actually haven't done ourselves a service when we caricature or straw man a character that isn't representative of the kind of challenge that's out there. Good illustration? Yeah. No.
3: Have to add to that okay. Oh, that's something. Okay. Because um, I, I don't have any opinions either. Because my mentor didn't have any. Um, I have I have a daughter who uh, has Asperger's, and she sees the world in very black and white um, uh, colors, or lack thereof, and I. I honestly, on principle, didn't go see that movie, um, but my daughter did, and it was very meaningful to her because she needs it spelled out where the bad guy looks bad and the good guy looks good as she learns to discern because she misses a lot of social clues, and I just had to shut up because as she's talking about this this film that she has seen, um, I realized that there is a place <laughs> like there's. It seems like there's a place for every, pretty much every kind of media, um, and and I had to I had to. Know, come off my little high horse a little bit and decide maybe God could use that too. <laughs>
1: we'll talk later. <laughs> uh, next. Oh, over here. Sorry. Yeah, go over here. Go.
0: Okay. Am I? Okay. Can yep, you hear me? You're on. Um, I have kind of a multifaceted question. That question was a little bit of what I'm asking, but from the perspective of the viewer, but then from the perspective of the artist who is a Christian artist, what would you say? their role is as it relates to the content of what they're producing. Are they limited to uh, say like explicitly Christian content? If not, then what is their responsibility as it relates to quality and what limits are there if any on their content? Or how how do they live out their faith when working with content that's not explicitly Christian in that sense?
4: Um, For me, their limits are the same as any artist.
1: Okay. You can't get
4: away with that. (laughs) I I made the
3: analogy between art and theology and work and theology, and I think the questions you're asking are very similar to how we process work. Mm -hmm. Is it okay for a Christian to have a non-ministry job as a vocation? If so, what kind of person should you be in that job? What kind you know, what kind of, I mean, it, it's pretty similar. You should be committed to excellence. Um, and a that, that great theologian, Oprah Winfrey, said that the, the biggest argument against, against racism is excellence. I've found that the biggest argument against sexism is excellence. And often the biggest argument against, you know, against Christian, uh, prejudice against Christians is excellence. So you should be really excellent at what you do.
4: Reg was speaking earlier about the singularity of beauty and truth and goodness in relation to God. And I believe that any artist is, generally they're trying to reach out for that. They're trying to move beyond themselves and see this bigger thing that's there of truth and beauty and goodness. I mean, that's what you would want from any artist. That's what would make us connect with it. And that's that's true also for a Christian um, they're trying to get at that underlying myth of the world that is that's beyond just the facts of the world um, that help us see the facts even more clearly, help us see things better.
1: So what you're saying is is that the artist who is challenged with the part where they play a sinister character, for example, um, should do it in such a way in which the real sinisterness of that character, comes out because part of what often happens with story is you've got a foil between the tension between the presence of evil and the presence of good that's working itself out in the storyline. So, it, it, when you said earlier, and I said I w- I'm gonna let you get away with it, and I'm not letting you get away with it now, um, uh, you know, you've got to approach it as an artist, is that the direction that we're going in with, with, with that observation? Is that is if you're given a part, you, you wanna work hard to p- portray it as, um, as honestly and, r- and really as
4: it can be? Uh, the artist, in that example, the piece of art is a whole. Right. And the person has a singular part in it. Mm-hmm. So it's not just what the singular person is doing, it's the, what that person is doing in relation to the whole truth mm-hmm. of that play or that movie um so yes they can lose themselves in that role as it fits into the whole if the whole is what is good Mm -hmm.
2: yeah the the, uh, like you could do um let's say you take a play by mamet uh david mamet play i could not do a david mamet play because of the language just personal choice but you know some some other guy couldn't or gal couldn't uh, that'd be fine uh i what i have to look at is for this is a great example of there are good characters in David Mamet plays. The message as a whole for a number of Mamet plays is not good. It's not wholesome. Mm -hmm. So what I want to be careful of is that I don't participate or endorse a play, a movie that celebrates the fruit of the flesh and does not at least suggest that there is a price to be paid for indulgence in sin. Because so very much of what is produced now is the, the polar opposite of what we believe in, uh, in, in, our, in Christ. Uh, it, it works against what we have to believe. So I don't want to participate in that kind of an event. That said, if a, if a play or a movie or, uh, opportunity comes along and the person is truly vile, I mean, read Charles Dickens mm-hmm. I mean the man has some of the most vile characters on earth they always get their comeuppance they always pay a price but you're you you never celebrate Uriah Heep. Mm-hmm. you know you want to see him crack his knuckles for the last time mm-hmm. and he does so it's, it's, but would I play Uriah Heap in a heartbeat? I would play Uriah, <laughs> Uriah. Yes. He'd be good at it, too.
3: <laughs> like, that was a backhanded compliment. So
1: your name is now Reg Heap? <laughs> Reggie the
4: Heap. Mm.
3: So you wouldn't want to create art that is, that is a lie, right? If Jesus right. is the truth. That's right. If Jesus is the truth, then you don't want to help contribute to a lie.
1: Okay.
0: Play naughty. naughty? <laughs> um, my question is, gosh, this is high, my question is, I've had the pleasure of having more than one class with all three of you, so I know the very real conversations that take place in your classroom, and I wanted to ask you, just looking back at the course of the past year and the way that you've journeyed with the students that you've taught in the past year, what's some new place of understanding that you've come to through that, journey with students, either in theology or just in relation to art and culture?
2: I have come to appreciate my growing awareness of a need to be flexible. That there are, there are valid expressions that I have to learn from, and the older I get, we get, mm-hmm. The Thank more, <laughs> the more I am, I am becoming aware that there is a gap between between where I am. I'll tell you the same thing, uh, between our generation and the millennials. And I, I mean, even on my fact, I mean, uh, Dr. Basselin, uh, there are there are things that he can sincerely, deeply appreciate that I need to learn to appreciate and I sincerely want to do that. So over the last year, I would say that's that's my main thing is broadening my appreciation for different expressions of art and learning to truly uh, not just appreciate them from a distance but become involved in them and, and integrate them into my, into my life.
4: Uh, I find that a very difficult question to answer because I set up my classes in a way I I purposefully set up my classes in a way where I don't have the answers. I try not to come with the, here's the stuff, I'm giving it to you. But this is a discussion and so, like literally every class period, I am learning from students. So it's uh, also that's partially because I haven't been around long and I have a lot to learn, (laughs) Mm -hmm. honestly. Uh, If I had to zero one thing this last year, I think um, I've not been a practicing artist in my life. I have a calling to write that I've never fully explored, I guess. So I've had opportunities in the last year to learn from students who have been practicing artists to learn what the practice of doing art looks like And so I've been on a journey uh, this last year learning that.
1: Okay, we're tight for time here. I'm gonna try and get both of these questions in, but I'm gonna ask our responders to keep it crisp so that we can get them both in. Go ahead.
0: Um, I have two questions. One is how can we incorporate or encourage the arts in our churches beyond music or the worship service? And the other question is in your experience, it seems that you guys have been doing a lot of work, not just in the Christian or seminary community, but also in the world. And I'm thinking for, uh, right now very specifically of the community um, that I have of uh, people that are not believers. And Compared to them, I am not cool. Like all of them have tattoos and are very trendy and I don't look at all like them. (laughs) But, uh, you know, and sometimes it can be hard to uh, remember that first our identity is in Christ and that we don't have to prove, like, that we are cool enough to be part of their world. But at the same time, we want to be there to witness for Christ. But how can we, or what are some practical ways that you guys have Seen as being who we are with our identity firm in the lord but ministering to that
2: community i'll give you two, two real quick things on on the church side of things start with baby steps start small and you it it really involves dialogue starting off with dialogue and the first dialogue has to happen between people in the local assembly between one another so you can start a reading group, a reading club. You can start a movie attending club where you go to a movie together as a group and you, you discuss afterwards. You go out to Starbucks, whatever you get together after the movie and you start dialoguing about that. And then you start inviting a neighbor or two to join your group in a reading group or in a, 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 a movie attending or a play attending or a concert attending group. And then you go out with them and start to talk. So gradually the circle widens and you start the circumference grows larger and larger until you're finally talking with people in the community about arts related projects. Then you take the step to formalize the training in the local assembly with people who are who are professionals in the art that's transition to the answer to the second question: excellence is cool mm-hmm. so you don't worry about about putting on a mask of coolness or trying to find some mask in your trunk full of, of, of of masks to impress people, you simply devote yourself to the discipline of the art to which the, that you wanna get involved in where you're gifted and you produce excellent art. That is cool. That will attract people. So I mean, think those, those are the two things I'd say.
3: I would add love. Um, when I walk into a group of junior hires, I'm like over 50 and you know I don't have any tats, but if I love them, they get so little of it, <laughs> Um, it's amazing how they, you know, what how that opens doors. Just being curious about their lives. What are they listening to? What are they interested in? Um, I think that's true with some of you too, you know.
4: Uh, I, concerning the first one with the church, I'd like to I'd like to echo what Reg said on the second one, and what Sandy said. But on the first one, I'd like to add. I like the organic vision that he's talking about, this like start at your table right here and it sort of spreads and and gets bigger and wider. However, I don't have much hope for that changing things by itself. We also need systematic, we have systematic theologies within the church that put the word of God up here on the stage and arts or anything like that back there in the corner somewhere. Mm And we need to have spaces for arts in churches. We need to have facilitators, curators, people that aren't art, the art is there. The artists are there. You just simply need to make space for it. And we don't have theological space, nor do we have actual physical space in our churches for art, because we don't appreciate it. Okay, last question over here. Um,
2: You guys have talked a lot about excellence and about how the integrity of your art is prime, I think kind of in retaliation against this Christian culture that says as long as it's theologically accurate and nice, then we don't have to worry about how good it is. But um, Mm -hmm. if I write or produce something that resonates with people, that's truthful and raw and excellent, (coughs) but um, it winds up leading somebody away from Christ or damaging their relationship with God, am I responsible for that?
4: Yeah. No.
1: <laughs> I'm not sure. Yeah, if you're <laughs>
2: <laughs> if you write something if you write something that is true, and I didn't get that I didn't get that from you. If it's true and it is good, it is and it's excellent, aesthetically excellent. And it is beautiful because it, it flows out of the, the truth, out of the uh, goodness, which flows out of the truth. And the person takes that and runs in, in a divergent path, then no, you're not responsible for that. If you celebrated that which is evil and it misled a person, then yes, then you are responsible. I, I, I think that you are complicit. I wouldn't say you're responsible, the person's ultimately responsible for his or her decision. But you are complicit in that because you have presented a lie as the truth and the person has bought it and acted on it.
3: You wanna explain yourself? Or just,
4: <laughs> uh, I, I think he explained both sides of it pretty well. Um, I taught a class at Wheaton one time and one of my course evaluations at the end of the class said that someone lost their salvation in my class. I didn't teach at Wheaton anymore, Um, (laughs) but I don't think I was really responsible. I think there was other stuff going on in that person's life, probably. Um, And I was trying my best in in everything I knew how to do to be obedient to what God had called me to and what I was presenting and the material and stuff. but they grew up in an extremely sheltered life and never heard anything about j e d p and i that was part of my responsibility in in teaching that class and and they couldn't handle it for other reasons that were going on in their life, and they didn't reach out and come and try to talk about it and i mean i I don't even know who that person was you know because it was an evaluation there's no name on it but Well, I thought
1: you said. Depends, or something like that. Or are you not going to? I gonna said elaborate? I'm not sure. You're not sure. <laughs> you still not so, sure?
3: No, I, I I agree with everything that was said. I <laughs> <laughs> actually do.
2: Actually do. For me, it's a
4: matter of obedience. If you are being obedient to what God has called you to, to the best of your ability, you rest in that. You fall back. You don't have to reach and worry, and you can just rest in who God has called you to be and, and, and trust that God is bigger than whatever you produce. Yeah,
2: just make sure it's God who called you
4: and, and not your flesh. <laughs> if we really had to worry about that, we wouldn't be able to produce anything because I'm always going to be flawed, and whatever I make is going to be flawed, and it is possible for it to hurt someone. That's, I also wouldn't be able to love anybody or be in a relationship or have a friend or do much of anything I'd be
2: paralyzed last last I promise <laughs> don't take a shortcut uh the at the root of almost I, I don't know if there's a sin that this is not true of Satan offers us a shortcut oh you want to be wise take that fruit and eat it now you can have wisdom right now you don't have to wait on God oh you're you hungry Jesus turn those stones into bread right now you know you want to avoid the cross throw yourself down from the temple man we'll, angels will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stump there's always a shortcut. And that shortcut, that easy way, is what I find among Christian artists across the board. Doesn't matter the genre, doesn't matter what it is that they're pursuing, the discipline that they're pursuing. They want, it's like the old saying about writing, most people don't really want to write, most people want to have written. Uh, it's, been, it's the same so thing about with working acting, out, You know, too. skip all of the discipline, skip all the hard work, skip the trench work where you're sweating it out and nobody sees what you're doing and just cut to the chase and walk across the stage and receive your Academy Award and it does not work that way. So I'm, I want to encourage you to, if, if you're in our program, there are, there are days when nobody except Jesus sees you And you are there paying the price for your craft and learning the discipline. And then you move up incrementally. Very, very seldom does someone come in and they make a a quantum leap up into the stratosphere. And besides that, it's not spiritually healthy to do that. Uh, So hang in there. Pay the price because God sees and God rewards and God will lead you.
4: And I I believe the reason Christians across the board artists often do that is because we have a theology that says if you have your theology straight, if you have your ideas straight, all you have to do is take them and put them over here. And that's all that matters. And so as opposed to um, just turn those stones into bread, right? Jesus talks about sowing. It's a long process.
1: (laughs) All right. Let's thank our panel.
0: Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well.
4: This episode was brought to you in part by just these guys, you know. A pastor and a psychologist team up to break down scripture and psychology empowering you to transform by the renewing of your mind. Listen today at justtheseguys.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Just these
3: guys, you know?